You are listening to the JCN Clinic Podcast. The JCN Clinic Podcast is a place where nutritionalists Jessica Cox and Carissa Mason get real about nutrition and living a healthy life. They share with you their passion and their clinical knowledge for a fun, no BS approach to looking after yourself. Please enjoy today's episode and don't forget to subscribe and iTunes. Hello and welcome to the JCN Clinic podcast show. I'm Jessica. I'm Michaela. <laughs> and you can hear that's right, Michaela on the end with me today. <laughs> We've kicked Carissa out once again. And one of the other practitioners from JCN Clinic is joining me. So we are talking today about something that's relatively topical, I feel, of late, which is awesome. And that is endometriosis. It's been a long time coming. We've done so many podcasts on hormones overall, um, different, we've, we've sort of brushed over it and brought it up in the topics or context of hormones, but we haven't actually done a specific podcast on it. We've definitely delved into PCOS, but it's about bloody time we talked about endometriosis. Yeah. And I was going to say to you before, Mickey, and I was like, no, no, let's just get recording because I think it's worthwhile talking about it on the pod. Um, I just feel like endometriosis is exactly what I was saying at the mo- at the moment. It's kind of like, or or even just in the last year, it's it's super topical. I almost feel like it's get it's having its um I don't it's moment. its moment. Do you do you think? Yeah. Do you feel like it's just like fully in the limelight of late? Yeah. I think the diagnosis and like the, um, I guess you would call it prevalence of diagnosis has gone up a lot, but I don't know if that's just because there's more awareness around it now or that like even in our space and all the practitioner information and like community that we have, like if there's just more information being shared around it yeah. too. Yeah, so true. I think that's absolutely the case. And I think thanks to the world we live in with social media as well maybe one of the good outcomes is that women in general who spend so much time on social media and I feel like there's an age bracket of women in that millennial sorry not millennial probably more like gen x who are now like speaking more openly about things like peri and PCOS and endo and all these sorts of um, conditions, conditions that have been in the past just swept under the rug like the generations that were above us didn't really talk about this but it, it feels like social media has allowed a platform for us to be more open and have conversations about it and I just think just female health is just getting a lot more attention too because of that yeah exactly and I think it gets it gets slightly more less taboo with each generation that goes on as well like I know there's still women who have that stigma around period talk and just hormones in general and like don't really want to discuss it, but it's really important for that long-term health and just like health in general. And I still like, even with my age group, which is, you know, mid twenties ish. (laughs) No, I don't want to get old. Um, (laughs) A lot of the women that I have conversations with around cycles and everything like that, there's still something that they'll just like live with this constant symptom picture and they're like um you know that that's not normal Mm. you should probably get that checked out kind of area but I think with um social media talking about it more and sharing more stories about like what isn't actually normal and what a real period should kind of look like respective of, of individuals and like everything else around that but yeah more information in general is usually good yeah absolutely absolutely yeah and it's amazing in today's like open social media society as you just said like the understanding of your cycle talking about your cycle more and Mm. you know there's so much more than ever I think as far as just general knowledge but you still we we see it all the time we'll see women making comments about their cycle Um, I feel like and this is quite pertinent to endo about even just things like pain and just um 
just yeah. that expectation of like you know periods should be painful um and I, there was someone even just I feel like in I can't think of the scenario whether it was a client there was someone in the last week and I was having a conversation with them and they just flippantly said something about around ovulation and pain and the amount of pain they're having but in the same sentence it was like yeah but you know I know that's normal it's just like hang on a second <laughs> <laughs> no yeah. normal for your like lifetime maybe but not normal in general like definitely a little like my ears literally pricked when you said that I was like what <laughs> no pain please pain free oh I love that I love what you just said yeah normal for your <laughs> lifetime like your experience yeah as opposed yeah. to like what is actually normal what 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 we should be aspiring to yes and this age of like almost oversharing at this point yes. is definitely helping us realize what is normal and what's not normal yeah so with that all being said we're going to dive into endometriosis as a condition and talk today about uh, what it actually is, of course, um, because even though there is a lot of talk about it, I think it's still important to acknowledge what the actual condition is. We're going to talk about um, the cause as such, which is interesting on its own and how that's changed over the decades as it's had more attention, study. We'll definitely talk about the gut. We'll definitely talk about the body and multi-systems that come into this. And I'm sure the part that a lot of you will want to hear the most about today uh, is about the treatment options, um, which excites us too, because we'll definitely discuss the mainstream medical model that will definitely come up as we talk through all of this. Um, but obviously, we also want to discuss how we approach a condition like endometriosis and, and all of the tools in our toolbox. Um, and I think even as we go through, there might even be some interesting clients that we'll be able to share um obviously no names but <laughs> just over I know even when I think about endo I just think of different clients over the years that are really good examples of how this is more than just what we have in the past considered endo to be as far as the box it used to sit in so with that being said Mickey do you want to start us off by talking about endometriosis as far as what it actually is right in a nutshell <laughs> like yeah i could definitely go off on a few tangents here tangent um, away but, yes okay <laughs> generally speaking like endometriosis is that growth of endometrial like tissue outside of the uterus uterus i was gonna say uterine lining but what i mean is just uterus in general and that can grow like anywhere it's pretty commonly found in that torso area so like around your ovaries on um, the intestines even up so far as like on your lungs and your heart tissue as well um, so it kind of just grows wherever but it's not good because it produces its own estrogen and it's really really inflammatory so you get a lot of fun pain <laughs> symptoms related to that and that higher estrogen level can cause a lot of other bits and pieces like interfering with ov ovulation, um, a lot more pain during the cycle as well. And like you said, you can get pain on ovulation, that random lady said, um, but also pain during intercourse. Um, and it can be pain like specific to your lower back or just the period pain in that frontal like uterus area, mm -hmm. even just pain um, going to the toilet as mm. well. <laughs> There's a lot of different fun symptoms from that. Um, and yeah, and the estrogen dominance, I guess we would call it, um, has a lot of other symptoms as well. It can interfere with like gut health, how your brain functions, um, even so far as to affect the immune system as well. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot you just said there, which I'm sure we'll dive into deeper. Um, I think also, mm -hmm. yeah, as you're saying, like with the ability for the endometrial tissue to grow in different places within that, like with throughout the entire body, but particularly most commonly, we do see it in that abdomen cavity, but often, and not always, this is what's fascinating about it as a condition, but often depending on the growth of the tissue itself can, can correlate to the pain um, and the type of pain. So as you were just saying, like we might, like if there's a lot of pain, 
bowel pain um, and a lot of gastrointestinal issues, you'll often see a lot of growth that can be around the bowel and around like the intestinal area. Um, But then I say that and it's not always the case, which again, we'll get into as we talk about like the uh, medical sort of diagnostic tools with things like laparoscopies and and what actually ends up being seen versus the amount of, of pain that people are presenting with. But I think there's, there is an element of like just highlighting that, the tissue can it can grow anywhere in the body, um, but definitely majority of the time it's within that abdomen cavity, which is where there can be so much um, actual interference with those digestive organs as well. Mm-hmm. As far as like the physicality of the position of the growth, let alone as you said, like how that um, estrogen element and the inflammation element itself can play into that on top so yeah it's kind of like it it fascinates me how um it can differ from person to person as far as like the extreme levels of the growth itself and where the growth is and the types of symptoms that um women uh, can experience and particularly women I know that endometriosis has even been found um, in some small percentages in in men which is like a whole another interesting side of this yeah right? I saw that recently but and I was like what know, the heck <laughs> so you know like but we are talking about it more so as far as females um, I guess yes. with context today but yeah have you seen I guess thinking about that and even with clients that you've seen to date or maybe even women you've spoken to it's pretty amazing how there is this variation between the amount of endometrial growth and how much is seen when when women have um, laparoscopies and the amount of tissue growth that's there versus their level of pain and how that can be really like just absolutely the opposite of what you might expect it's so interesting though and like varied because sorry you'll have some people that have full endometrial growth and they've discovered it by accident like they literally don't have any symptoms so it can be really like not what you're thinking at all but you can also be your classic endometrius type client and have like painful periods from the Mm get-go like as soon as you start menstruating, you get that pain immediately, can't function during your cycle, like the classic kind of picture. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I just had to cough that out then. Um, but also, yeah, like depending on how much endometrial tissue you go, it depends, I guess, how productive that tissue is. And so I think there's, I can't remember if I wrote any notes about this, but I think there was two types of endometrial tissue, mm-hmm. uh, like, um, and one definitely is more more pro-inflammatory and more um, estrogen producing than the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that depends on like which type of tissue is more prevalent for you as well. And also like how sensitive you are to that estrogen picture, like what was happening with your hormones before, how sensitive you are to pain in general, mm. um, which I guess is back to that nervous system development as well and like too many other things to take into account. But yeah, very varied set of symptoms in response to to that tissue growth yeah for sure and yeah interesting even in the context of how you may experience it as a condition with you talking about even the nervous system i think another element to that um causation or the um as we often use the word pathogenesis like this the the way this um develops as a condition is that as mickey was saying essentially we're getting like every every month particularly and any and around ovulation when that um those those that endometrial tissue is getting um that sort of surge of estrogen which is influencing it the other thing that's coming with that as as that um, is responding we're getting this repeated um essentially like a, a, a tissue injury as such to that area and then a repair so it's like this kind of constant stimulation and then the body aiming to repair that 
and over time itself, then that can lead to that area becoming more like the actual um, tissue changing, like there can be like an actual um, lesions and fibrosis that can happen with that tissue area. So just was just thinking more so as, as far as how pain itself can develop with that, like not only when that actual um, injury or assault is happening to that area, and that stimulation, but how that over time can create these um, sort of, yeah, these lesions as such, but also depending on the person as well, the nerve stimulation to that area as well. So like that's going to differ from person to person and that kind of biofeedback as far as nerves, nerves, innovation, pain, how that person experiences pain. So again, as, as Mickey was saying, like you'll have some women that might like even say it's something like for fertility but they've got no other symptoms or it's just something completely unrelated that they're having like um i don't know say uh, appendix or there's but there's some reason that they're having exploratory surgery in that area and like the surgeon's like oh my god this woman's like riddled with endometriosis and she has no idea which just fascinates me and i think it comes down to how the body is expressing pain how and where maybe these lesions are, how that, yeah. And as you said too, like what's that, what's that woman's cycle like? What's her um, hormone history like, her detox of hormones like versus a woman who's got like super painful periods, all of the classic symptom picture and what that mm-hmm. might actually present like in the body. So, yeah, it just, it's just fascinating. And I think it's important as far as like, um, I feel like in the old... I'm going to say the old days, which makes you sound so (laughs) (laughs) ridiculously archaic, but I feel like it used to be, you know, this grading system of, um, you know, like the stages of growth. And it was like, you know, the more growth that you had, it's like you had more kind of um, emphasis on being more, more painful or, or harder to, to deal with and it's just clearly not the case it's like a very much a person by person experience of the condition yeah and I guess like depending on how you respond to that like inflammation and that um estrogen production as well it's hard to grade something when you're not the person experiencing it too mm-hmm. like I guess that's the other angle there that you could go with is is how do they grade the severity of endometriosis just looking at the tissue yeah so you've got to take that full symptom picture and like really assess what is actually um, what it's causing, what it's affecting, how that person's life is, I guess, altered by that experience as well mm-hmm. and working with that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what about more so around that hormone? Like obviously you spoke about estrogen itself and like the more <sighs> there, there's so much more coming out and research being done beyond just the hormonal element which we've we've definitely mentioned and we'll talk more about but I think it's it's important not only to acknowledge estrogen's role but as you said like the history of the hormones overall and I feel like the it's often considered to be of course a, a more kind of estrogen dominant type condition but I think what we're seeing and this is something that's really valuable for us as a tool and being able to look further into this is that it's not just about it's not so clear cut of like it being like it's an estrogen dominant condition on its own a lot of it comes down to how your body is dealing with those estrogen metabolites and that's something you know i'm sort of jumping ahead here it's something that we see in testing um Mm. But I would also say that I mentioned when we first started about clients, like over the years, I've definitely had clients that um, through doing further testing and knowing um, that endometriosis is part of their symptom picture, that there hasn't been that type of presentation where you're looking at like a hormone panel and seeing like, oh, look, here we go. Here's some estrogen dominance. Here's this, here's that. Like as far as it being that clear cut, like I've definitely mm-hmm. seen clients where they've got actually got pretty good levels of estrogen or if not, um, I can think of one client where it was actually a little on the lower side. But what I could see was dysregulation of some um 
some other hormones, but particularly in how her body was detoxifying and clearing estrogen. And then also a history around gut health, which we will definitely be getting into um, and thinking about that involvement. So, yeah, I don't know whether like there's anything you wanted to add to that as far as sort of areas you have been sort of looking into of late about the hormone picture itself. But I just think it's, um, again, really fascinating how hormones play into this but again it's not so black and white of like estrogen dominant that's it that's the only cause yeah no and I've definitely had like what you're saying I've definitely had clients that have diagnosed endometriosis and their estrogen levels came up totally fine in the Dutch test yeah so it can be not necessarily um, an estrogen promoting situation but what we're looking at with endometriosis is largely that inflammatory response. Like that's what drives the growth of that estrogen. Uh, sorry, not estrogen. What am I saying? Endometriosis and far out. <laughs> the endometrial <laughs> tissue, all the lesions. Yeah, endometrial yep. tissue um, and that scarring and everything that happens with that inflammatory response. It's it's all like that more inflammatory mm-hmm. um, driven condition that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. So you can have the high estrogen, like that's definitely commonly seen but it's not the only presentation of of endometriosis either yeah, absolutely so what about the gut let's move on to the gut so your favorite topic. <laughs> yes <laughs> let's let's nerd out on the gut and and the involvement here i feel like this is an area that absolutely there's going to be more and more coming out about as far as more specifics and the microbiome itself but yeah, how about before, before I go into this, I can think of like some client situations too. How about from your perspective, like what have, what have you seen to date um, with clients and then also as far as some of that more emerging new data that's coming out about the gut, which is nice to see. Yeah. Um, I have to remember all of my endo clients now. <laughs> I can only think of like the two most recent and one of them was like, yeah, definitely um, some gut symptoms going on. Nothing like super large, but yeah, a little bit more bloating, Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of change in those bowel motions, especially around their cycle. Mm -hmm. Like it was super, super noticeable. Um, And I don't remember if I've done any gut testing necessarily with an endo client. Mm -hmm. I'd have to go and look that up. But what I've seen in the research um, is that there is like a more... I guess, pro-inflammatory gut state with endometriosis. And I'm not sure if that's largely because of that inflammation or if there's a gut, like chicken and egg situation, Mm. if there's a gut thing happening before the endometriosis develops too. Yeah. I think what you just said there is so important as far as that chicken and egg scenario. (laughs) And I think that's part of what is still to be further unpicked. My look... I don't know, maybe I'm being biased. I I feel like it's, I feel like the gut potentially is a little bit in some ways ahead in maybe the amount of inflammation that can start there and um, contribute to that hormone dysregulation when there's potentially already a bit of a predisposition for something like endo to happen, particularly maybe from like a genetic point of view. Um, Mm. but holy moly, it's so chicken and egg, you know, like that, as you just highlighted that gut inflammation and having that heightened inflammatory response already going on in the gut and therefore that gut immune axis is already very dysregulated. Then we've got such a catalyst to play further into like that inflammatory cycle that we see with endometriosis. So, you know, you just, one of the very, again, not every single person, but one of the common elements we see with an endometriosis client is that not only is there the symptoms that Nikki was talking about around the period itself with the pain and often the heavy bleeding and the cramping and, and so forth that comes with that, but these gut-based symptoms where women will tell you around ovulation, 
around their period, often even from ovulation onwards, that they're, I can think of a client that's the opposite of that, which is just, (laughs) she's always ticking all the opposite boxes. But generally, we're getting these like increased bowel um, and kind of classic IBS type symptoms. And again, it makes sense if you think about the... um, so that pathogenesis or the like um, the or not so much pathogenesis but the growth of that endometrial tissue as far as being um, activated through this time and then that inflammation going on in the digestive system it just kind of plays into each other and we've got that like aggravation at the at the say the bowel or wherever that tissue is that's going on and then we've already got inflammation going on in the microbiome and the immune system's already overstimulated so it's just like this vicious cycle that feeds back onto itself um yeah so i know i have found with clients that the the more there is um work that is done on the gut on reducing gut inflammation and improving gut health more often than not you see the symptoms and um, the sort of condition itself as uh, endometriosis start to improve Um, whether it is I've definitely seen to be honest like complete resolution even just from treating the gut absolutely Um, but also definitely a real dial down of symptoms when you're getting that gut inflammation under control, which is pretty damn cool. <laughs> yeah. My brain, like so many things to consider there too. <clears throat> and with that gut angle, like, is that because of the detoxification of estrogen? Like, is it being processed more effectively or is that because the gut is leading that inflammatory um, response there too? Yeah. Because with, with the gut and, and endometriosis specifically, they have found that um, they have a higher level of gram-negative bacteria mm-hmm. and sometimes that can produce your lovely um, toxins like your LPSs, your lipopolysaccharides, and that's pretty much an inflammatory marker systemically, so it can affect all of your system in the body. But if that promotes the endometrius onset, in endometriosis, endometrioma uh-huh. onset yeah or if if the endometriosis and that inflammatory response that it's kind of causing promotes the growth of those more pathogenic bacteria in the gut and i don't know if that's just because of locality like they're very close to each other and those immune um communicators and messengers and, and the cytokines travel or if um it's directly affecting that some in another in another way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I know there's even been some studies that are being looked at as far as like the bacteria around the tissue area too, which is pretty cool. Um, like around the itri- the endometrium. Yeah, themselves. yeah. Which is I know I I kind of feel like you know again early days as far as like making. Assumptions about what is being seen there versus what's going on in the microbiome, but definitely, like some of those stands out have been those LPS producers. And as you say, like yeah. again, it's it's very like it's <laughs> a chicken and egg as far as how that's affecting the gut or how that's affecting the, um, the body systemically and that inflammation. And then I love that you mentioned there too. You know that detoxification element which is huge here with how estrogen is being cleared through the body so if we've got an increased load of lps producing bacteria in the gut um particularly things like e coli i know has been looked at with Mm. endometriosis we can often see increased in a marker we call beta glucuronidase and we this is something we test with Stool testing a lot, which can tell us that we are seeing um, a dysregulation in that um, that sort of reset, like, oh, sorry, I should say dysregulation in detoxifying estrogen. So it can mean that we're getting this recycling and this increased load back into the liver of of estrogen. So we can see we can see again how that gut microbiome dysregulation can be playing into this, and then even further how that then can go 
and affect that clearance of estrogen. And that that plays into, as we we're mentioning um, before, not only see what we can see in a, in a, a really good comprehensive stool test, but something like a Dutch test, which then shows us more about how you are detoxifying estrogen further. So mm. there's all these stepping points that we can look at where there can be irregularities before we've even looked at the sex hormones themselves and what estrogen itself is doing, what your progesterone's doing, um, which I think, again, highlights the absolute value of making sure that we've got optimal gut health with a condition like endometriosis. Yeah, and when you mentioned E. coli, when I was doing a little bit of research into the pathogenesis, like how this occurs, um, which they haven't exactly figured out, but there's a few different mechanisms that they're looking at with that retrograde sorry, retrograde menstruation, really can't talk today. Um, That's kind of one of, I guess, the more leading Mm -hmm. theory behind endometriosis. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you mentioned E. coli, I remembered something about them finding E. coli in that endometrial fluid. Mm. And like if the retrograde menstruation theory would be correct, like, because that does happen in like 90% of mm-hmm. people anyway, but not all of them get endometriosis. Exactly. If there's E. coli in that endometrial tissue, like already, or that menstrual fluid, if you get that retrograde menstruation, then that um, E. coli is traveling into the, what did you call it before? I've forgotten the word, the cavity. Yeah, into that abdominal, abdominal cavity. Abdominal cavity. Yeah. yeah. And like whether that's the trigger for endometriosis or not, still discovering that, but like, You'd have to, the testing to find that out would be absolutely insane. Like you'd have to monitor people who haven't even had their period yet. And that would be a little bit invasive. Yeah. Yeah. There's so, again, like what we think it's fascinating, but as you just said, with one of the sort of top theories still is this, is retrograde menstruation, which is this backflow that happens in, in the major percentage of women with menstruation. But then, Mm. as you said, it's just like, well, why? But then, for us, I think when we think about the why, when you, you think back into what we're just talking about as far as like, well, what what's the difference between person A versus B and their ability to deal with that retrograde menstruation as far as like, what's that LPS load that might be going on there? Like what bacteria, what's our immune, yeah. compromise, what's our immune compromisation levels at? Like, are we able to to deal with things effectively from an immune point of view, clean them up, process them, not create an inflammatory, a major inflammatory response. Like what's that cascade look like from person A to B? What's that detox look like from person A to B? So you can kind of see, I think more so from how we, we consider the context of everything, how maybe it creates those percentage of people where it is problematic. Like I know we're hypothesizing. Well, we are hypothesizing, but also the data is coming out more and more that alludes to this. So I don't think it's pie in the sky stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And without hypothesizing, we would have literally no like science background. So this is all good theory. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But yes, so much to think about there and like potentially something that can be researched down the track. Like if this is getting more common and more awareness around it, Usually that translates into more research at some point in time. Yeah. Um, But I guess we'll see. Yeah, exactly. So is there anything else gut-wise you wanted to mention? I feel like we've covered that pretty well at the moment, but anything else that stands out your end? Mm, Other than the extra nasty bacteria and their side products. Um, And we've already talked about like the symptoms, like more... IBS-like symptoms, that dysbiosis, even leading to to situations like SIBO, um, the endo bloat is that classic symptom that gets talked about a lot as well. Yes. Like severe bloating and that that inflammation and that that pain that can come with that bloating as well. Yeah. Again, back to the the gut and like how the microbiome set up there, but also like how you're responding to that inflammation, um, like what's going on in terms of the heaviness of the cycle as well, where your estrogen's at, like it all kind of ties in. Mm-hmm. Um, what was I reading before? I was saying something about the gut. And also 
in terms of that LPS production, the, the um, more pathogenic bacteria, they produce that LPS. That's how I was saying that that was pro-inflammatory is because it triggers that cytokine production and, and the flow and effects of that. But you can also have, if you don't have enough progesterone, so you're not, like, if you're not ovulating, you don't have progesterone pretty much at all, like, only that minimal amount. Um, but if there's not enough progesterone to, like, counteract, I guess, the effects of estrogen, that's going to change your immune response as well and, like, how much cytokine production there is and how you're responding to that as well. Mm-hmm. So many things around. Yeah, that. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. And you know what you just mentioned too is uh-huh. about SIBO. Um, mm-hmm. I love that you mentioned that too because this is another sort of, again, kind of <laughs> vicious cycle. We talked about the um, adhesions that develop with the endometriosis. So if we have this um adhesions that are forming on the small intestinal tract this is where we can actually see this functional um, sort of dysregulation of the motility of the small intestinal tract because of these actual physical adhesions in that area we don't get that nice flow of things through the small intestinal tracts as we should because we've actually got these physical like kind of blocks that are happening because of these adhesions or these kind of rope like bumps in the road. Um, yeah, that scar yeah. tissue being like super inflexible exactly. inhibits that that peristalsis. That's it exactly. So that we we know one of the major um, drivers of SIBO or a, a sort of a cause of SIBO is this poor motility of the small intestinal tract. So sometimes you know when we when we are looking at SIBO. Definitely, we're looking at the bacterial load itself in the small intestinal tract and how we need to deal with that. But we're also always considering motility. So this is where if we know that someone has endometriosis um, and there is these adhesions going on, particularly if they've potentially had um, diagnostic exploratory surgery and it's been like they've been told it's in that area that's so significant Mm. because that's that's something we need to consider ongoingly for supporting something like motility so it can be it can kind of be it can be a cause of SIBO um, itself or but then the SIBO (laughs) because it's inflammatory and then we get the all that LPS production all things that Michaela was talking about then that can kind of create a back loop back onto the inflammation of the endo so it becomes this horrible vicious circle which isn't very nice yeah Yeah. and that's why i bring up the chicken and eggs i'm like i don't know which comes first but they feed each other (laughs) (laughs) um also with that gut um angle and like talking about SIBO as well like SIBO is one of those situations where you or generally have that lowered diversity which is another thing that's commonly seen in endometriosis Mm -hmm. um guts testing and that lower diversity depending on what's going on there and like the balance of everything is going to contribute to that stool motility too, mm-hmm. additional to the scarring tissue on the intestines. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. Well, I feel like you and I have <laughs> hopefully helped listeners understand the integral reason we need to consider the gut in all of this. So let's move on to starting to talk about treatment, but also mm-hmm. I think as far as treatment too, we'll talk a bit about, we've already alluded to it, some of the diagnostics. So um, with, if I was just to talk first about that, I want to kind of classify it as like that kind of mainstream medical model um, versus um, the other sort of areas of treatment that are quite wide and diverse that we can tap into and they can be utilized. I don't want to, make this about an us versus them. Like they can absolutely be used in unison. And don't, I definitely know we have many clients that um, utilize both. So really like the, the mainstream um, or um, your kind of gold standard, that's the word I'm looking for, or words, diagnostic yeah. is still laparoscopy at this point. There is, there is a bit of a move towards imaging but I think that, of course, still comes down to like the amount of growth that can even be seen. I think, you know, that's still very pie in the sky as far as imaging to diagnose. Um, laparoscopy, yeah. which is going in and having a, a look in 
the um, abdominal cavity. So it does involve going in, having the procedure, having anesthetic, and then if the endometrial tissue is found, um, they will often aim to remove that with cutting. They used to do burning to remove it as well. Now, yeah, I don't think the ablation has the burning has as much um, success rate as actually the yeah the cutting yeah, which has changed over the years too. Like over the decades, it's been like no, it's all about like let's cut it. No, no, now (laughs) let's burn it. No, no, let's go back to cutting. But essentially, the concept here is that one, it's diagnostic. And then two, whilst they're in there, then they can remove what they can see. And for some women, a lot, you know, I'm not going to say all women, but for some women that can be an amazing um, change on its own, but it doesn't, it doesn't change majority of the time. It won't change the tissue growing back because we're not dealing, of course, with the underlying cause or drivers. So most of the time, women who have laparoscopies will continue to have them maybe every sort of three or four years, depending again on how they're responding. And the the problem with laparoscopies, like they every every time you have that type of surgery, there are complications. So they can go swimmingly and no issues at all, but also it does risk on its own damage to the abdominal cavity, um, causes of adhesions and scarring from mm-hmm. the procedure itself. So there are other factors that we need to consider when it comes to laparoscopy, but really, yeah, and yeah. also the potential of of any um, bacterial infections that you may or may not get from surgery slash being in hospital. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it's definitely still used heavily today, and we have many yes. clients with endometriosis that are, are having laparoscopy procedures and then we're supporting them alongside that and ideally either pre post um dealing with ideal you know driving down the um desire for the body to keep in that vicious endo cycle but laparoscopy heavily used um also i think this has changed a lot over the years too but um, from a medical model as far as medications use, it's usually majority of the time about controlling hormones, um, probably more and more like starting to look at things outside the box there. But over the years, it's been about um, shutting down the hormones, essentially thinking about it being purely hormonally driven, either use of the, the pill or yeah. um, even medications that will put the body into even depending on the age of a woman hasn't really matter um, in how it's looked at with this, but putting the body into like a, I guess into menopause using different, different forms of medication that are shutting down that hormone system and um, telling it essentially not to um, produce these um, sex hormones, but particularly uh, the, the estrogen as such. So, Again, I think some some women that may do the job, others the problem is there's a lots of complication and side effects from those medications. Um, yeah. Did you? I don't know if there was anything to add to that that you can think of as far as the the sort of medical model as dealing with endo. Um, just that with the lapros- laparoscopy, like obviously because it's a surgery, there will be increased pain straight away. And then it does get better, mm-hmm. but yeah, like you said, that tissue usually grows back, so it's not it's not gonna solve the problem. Yeah. And also with the pill, I still see it today, and it bugs me. But it's not it's not hormone regulating at mm. all. All it's doing is what you said, Jess, is is shutting down the hormones essentially, which can provide relief because of that estrogen and inflammation feedback loop there. Yeah. Um, but it's also not solving the problem. Yeah. So you've got a, you can definitely combo these with natural medicines and nutrition and, and herbs and stuff to help manage the symptoms. But also with endometriosis, it can potentially be a lifelong situation of dealing with this. Yeah. Like it, it might never fully um, subside. Yeah. That's not the word. What's the word I'm thinking Resolve? of? Like remission? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And look, we're not, we're also, again, I'll just highlight, we're not sort of saying like, don't do these 
procedures like it's or as far as medication and every situation will be different um mm. and that's something that you need to decide with your health carer and working out the best approach but definitely what we want to highlight is why they're used how they can they can help but also being mindful of like the complications the side effects but ideally how if that is something that you're utilizing that you can use which we'll talk about next um, nutrition herbs diet and all these other amazing tools that we have that can have profound effects so let's talk about that (laughs) (laughs) back to the positive stuff (laughs) okay what do you want to start with? Because this is like a lot. I know. Well, I <laughs> you pick. Where do you want to start? <laughs> uh, let's start with food because yep. that's something that's going to be really kind of foundational in terms mm-hmm. of managing this long term. Um, depending on the situation, like I have seen a lot of gluten-free, dairy-free situations can improve that pain and can improve the digestive side of symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and additional to that, like you know, just having a slightly more anti-inflammatory diet, including a lot more omega-3 foods, a lot more colorful veggies, your turmeric, your ginger, um, even parsley to an extent, and like things that are going to help improve that detoxification of the extra estrogen, mm-hmm. if that is what's going on in your situation. Um, yeah, that was my list of things. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I do like, even just to back note on what you're saying about the GFDF diet, mm-hmm. I think just to highlight too, that plays heavily into what we're saying before, right back to the gut. Like if, if we have, we've already got women that tend to already have inflammatory issues. And a lot of the time, these are common foods that are part of a gut inflammation picture. So by often dialing these down in a diet or removing them with these type of um yeah situations or presentations you'll get that immediate reduction of an inflammatory driver just from food so it's not it's i so 100% agree with what mickey's saying like it's it's pretty amazing how much just even that gluten and dairy free based diet can have a pretty significant effect here it can seem a bit like oh of course it's going to be gluten and dairy free but like it <laughs> it's not it's not just to be uh trendy it's absolutely has its reason. Um, and I no, I like, I literally have a study that says that it, it reduces <laughs> yeah. the progression of the growth. So like, don't come at me. I've got research. <laughs> uh, P.S. Remind me to make sure I get that from you to put in the show notes. Cause we're going to re- put all out the, all these notes in for people. We've, we've talked a lot about research today. So it'd be good to have those yes. as reference. Um, I'd also say food wise phytoestrogens. I know um, actually, Alexa and Mel did a really good live last night mm-hmm. um, or on, depending on when you're listening to this, it'll be on Mel Fenwick's page. Uh, it was more in relation to menopause, but they talked a lot about phytoestrogens. Um, these can be a wonderful food that often misunderstood as far as be- a lot of women will avoid them thinking that they're, they're bad and they're going to drive estrogen up. But phytoestrogens are a modulator. And they can really help push that estrogen detoxification down the more beneficial pathway. So it also referenced things like quality, organic, tofu, tempeh, edamame, miso, um, as part of a flax whole seeds. food diet. Yeah, flax seeds. Um, Chia seeds. Yes, There's a lot. thank you. All of those. <laughs> so it's amazing what you can do with diet. And again, we've seen this, like there's studies, but anecdotally in clinic, like we'll see someone come in where we'll really change up their diet um, with all these beautiful whole foods and create a more medicinal intake with all these beautiful compounds and inflammatories. And it, it absolutely works. Like don't underestimate the power of what the food changes can do for something like endometriosis. Yes, especially at that gut level, because like I do say this a lot with clients and I'm like, your gut is inflamed. It's extra sensitive. It's like, don't put something that's going to be inflammatory. Like don't rub salt in the wound, you know? Yeah, Yeah, perfectly said. And like think of the opposite, (laughs) right? If you've got uh, someone presenting like this, how it affects them when they are consuming more inflammatory foods. So if they're like, if you've got endometriosis 
Um, and particularly if you're in that kind of like just before you get your period type area where a lot of women are flaring and you go out and drink a lot of alcohol, holy crap, like that. <laughs> Have fun with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's cruel, like, you know. Because you just want to like have a couple of drinks and have fun with your friends, but you you absolutely will see that dial up of that inflammatory response, which is kind of like the opposite to how we're talking about using diet. Um, yes, and like this is that's the case even with people who experience period pain but aren't like don't have endometriosis too. Yeah. That just extra inflammatory response. Yeah, and also with that, like if you've got the right tools to manage that, and you've like like the rest of your diet and the rest of your supplements are fine on a normal basis that can be, you know, less severe each time potentially, like depending on where that, that growth of that endometrioma um, is as well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So other than diet, which is huge foundation, like crucial, <laughs> don't even, yeah. I wouldn't say don't, don't even bother because that's a bit brutal. But like, honestly, <laughs> if you don't have that and then you try and move on to these other areas, I'll always say like, you're just, you're fighting against yourself. So that foundation of diet is number one. And then from there, mm. what we're going to look at is absolutely your gut health for sure. We talked about all of the reasons why. So if we know we've got issues there, we're going to treat that head on. How are we going to do that? It's going to come down to you, your presentations. It may involve testing. It may involve stool testing, SIBO testing. It may not. It will depend on you and your presentation. But treating the gut as far as reducing inflammation, microbiome health. Um, Mickey mentioned things about even undergrowth, which is really vital and not given enough attention as far as our diversity and growth of species all of that has to be has to be i will highlight treated in bold. yeah don't like again like why like if you have a really horribly inflamed gut and you're not treating that and you're just trying to go in and treat the hormones on their own good luck with that <laughs> it's just yeah like... you're just angling on like one aspect of it and like as I've said in previous podcasts, nothing in the body works on its own. Mm. So you just like attacking one thing is is not gonna do a lot. Yeah, for sure. And what about hormone? As far as like, you know, what if we tick those two off? What about hormones, Mickey? Like, as far as what we we can do there, <laughs> another big big area. But <laughs> did you want to speak a bit to that? Um, I mean, obviously trying to ensure that they are ovulating because that progesterone is going to be anti-inflammatory and really supportive of that, um, re reducing the risk of, of more growth. Then you've got like, I guess the rest is just depending on where their estrogen is at and like the rest of their hormones too, but making sure that you're detoxifying estrogen properly, um, looking at that liver function and that gut function there. And there is like hor hormone modulating herbs, mm. like, um, your taste tree is quite, quite common, but it's not always the best thing. Mm -hmm. um, other options there would be like your Shadavari and, and um, what's that other one that I use a Rosemary. Lot? You use a lot of rosemary. <laughs> I do use a lot of rosemary. It's so convenient though. Um, like it's got heaps of that anti-inflammatory action there. Helps detoxification. Um, and it's super anti-inflammatory and it's, it's like small dose. So it's really quite powerful. Um, yeah, the rest would kind of depend on, on what we're looking at and the rest of your situation, mm. but yeah, herb, herbs that modulate your hormone, herbs that focus on that liver detoxification pathway and like generally anti-inflammatories. For sure. And that's, again, that's where we mentioned the Dutch earlier, like usually that will help drive the direction of this. And yeah, again, it's like... You can surmise and then we're trying to hopefully by now we've painted a picture of where this is so individual. You could try and surmise and go, oh, it's endometriosis. So I need to like dry, you know, it's going to be estrogen dominant. So I need to do this and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, it doesn't work like that. And we have seen again with clients the complexities of it. So a Dutch, when you have a Dutch test and we can see what those hormones are doing, 
that's where we can go in specifically. And um, like often um, Michaela and I will work with a client together on this where I've been working with a client to a certain point, we've done a Dutch test and we'll talk um, collectively about, all right, now because of these results, we're going to utilise um, a liquid herbal with X, Y, Z because of what these findings are. And we can kind of like bring that sort of nutrition and herbs all together and the magic happens. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, and then you mentioned inflammation. So, I mean, massive, you, again, where do you even start? But we've, I think we have <laughs> absolutely highlighted the absolute crucial component of inflammation in all of this as endo, as an inflammatory condition. So for us, again, it's driving inflammation down and all of the things we just mentioned will help that, particularly if they're underlying drivers of inflammation. So first and foremost, it's like, why are you inflamed? But we can use things that are anti-inflammatory too, which mm -hmm. can be pretty magic. So there's lots of tools in our toolbox there that we can use as direct anti-inflammatories and same with diet, like we can create that beautiful anti-inflammatory diet. But I, th I think it's twofold. Yeah. Like it's, Actual anti-inflammatories, great, but also why? We always ask that question, why are you inflamed? Because let's treat that as well. Yeah, stop um, adding to the inflammation. And like medical, not medical, standard treatment for this from a GP would be like your NSAIDs and, mm -hmm. and that pain relief angle, which is great. Like obviously it works, um, but it's not great for the gut either. Mm. And also not like the more, I guess used to your body like your body hang on let me rephrase that entirely <clears throat> the more used to taking those NSAIDs your body becomes sometimes the less effective they can become yeah. um, so it's not always a good thing to necessarily be taking them long term mm -hmm. when we're talking about anti-inflammatory um, herbs or food or even nutrients there in terms of that gut healing and that gut angle as well like a lot of the anti-inflammatories that we use for the gut are systemic anti-inflammatories especially when it comes to herbs like top of mind is definitely your turmeric and your ginger and um, sometimes herbs like graviola as well but also modulating that gut microbiome can be anti-inflammatory using things like NAC, your green tea, all of those antioxidant mm -hmm. Um, nutrients too. There's so many. Um, Pain-wise, there are, there are specific herbs, like if you do have painful periods and like while we're managing this inflammation and sorting out some other things, there is pain relief in the form of herbs as well, like your Corydalis, your Calpoppy, um, Jamaican Dogwood, and even Cramp Bark is a really common one that you can find in tea as at like a, um, a health food store that I often recommend. It's good at um, stopping this the smooth muscle contraction so that uterine tissue literally tensing mm -hmm. helps to slow that down a little bit so you don't get as much cramping around that cycle wow that's a lot that's i feel like yeah i can imagine probably should have went slower no it's good i could imagine someone just like rant, like scribbling away furiously the names everything that you just said <laughs> And there's some goodies there which we can put in the show notes too as far as like some, some general things with teas and so forth. But also remember that, yeah, Michaela's mentioning a lot of amazing medicinal options, but it's still, you know, about figuring out what's right for you. Yeah, these herbs are not anti-inflammatory alone. They have other actions which might change what I use. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So just don't self-prescribe. <laughs> So I think that brings us to the to the end. Um, is wait, there yes? Wait, I want to talk about say, what, <laughs> I was <laughs> to say, is there anything that I've missed that you want to? Yes, knack. Tell me NAC. about knack. Oh, and we probably should mention omega threes. Like they have a great deal of anti-inflammatory action here too. Mm -hmm. But yes, your knack. It's um, it does a lot of things, but it is anti-inflammatory. It helps somewhat regulate that gut microbiome supports detoxification pathways so if we're looking at that high estrogen um, the NAC is going to help with regulating that um, but specifically for the endo growth it has 
reduce the size of the tissue growth, reduce the progression of the disease, so less growth over time, and if there's any cysts associated with that endometrioma too, which sometimes they can come hand in hand as well, um, it does reduce that. But talking about one specific study, which I didn't copy the link for and I'm annoyed about now, I will find it. They did treatment of NAC on about 24 patients before their laparoscopy. Mm -hmm. So this is before they'd technically been diagnosed. Um, And just that alone, 50% of their patients cancelled their laparoscopy because they didn't need it for that pain relief anymore. That's wild, isn't it? 50%. No, that's mad. I've actually got a study that... I'm going to say this and I'm going to be like, damn it, because I'm going to have to go find it as well. <laughs> that I wrote, it's actually from a while ago, but it was a study done where it was, um, yeah, using NAC over three months. Um, and it was more looking at oxidative stress markers. And yeah, say, it'd be, it'd be funny if it was the same study, but it, yeah, it led to this significant reduction of pain um, through reducing oxidative stress over just three months. So it's I, I, studies pretty amazing. Also clinically, I've definitely seen improvements with this, and I can think of a couple of clients that swear by knack when it comes to endo. Um, yeah. So it's it's pretty important, and I think it just does so much. Like it just ticks so many of the boxes as far as like underlying drivers. So it makes sense, as you just highlighted really mm-hmm. well. And I've used NAC with a lot of just period pain in general, not necessarily endometriosis too, with good success as well. Mm-hmm. It's like my, it's my favorite, I think. It doesn't taste good at all, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's one of my favorites. Like drinking farts. <laughs> yeah, gross. <laughs> Anything else that you have in your uh, hot little hands that you wanted to mention as far as particular studies, etc.? Because I know that Sometimes you go down some serious rabbit holes and find some cool stuff to share. Yeah, I've got like a whole page here that I haven't even looked at because we just kind of skipped (laughs) over that area. But that's okay. Um, The rest is kind of like stuff that you can use aside from herb, nutrient, diet related things um, in terms of reducing that pain um, and managing that uh, scar tissue and, and that growth specifically. Um, more like acupuncture, mm. uh, even the TENS machine, like hot bath, heat, obviously. Heat's They're amazing. all things that are a bit more common. Yeah. Yeah. But also stretching. Yeah. Like stretching those muscles around the hips and around the uterus can improve pain as well, especially related to that period mm-hmm. pain and even ovulation pain, which is wild. Um, but I think because of that inflammatory response and like all of the stuff that's going on around that region is your muscles get tight. Like they're inflamed. They don't want to move because they're inflamed. Mm -hmm. And also in terms of like cortisol and another side tangent. Um, But yeah, stretching them out can help with that tension and that spasming that you get with higher pain and um, literally the cramping around your cycle as well. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a whole nother banner of like we've just talked more about our modalities, but as you just highlighted, there's a whole nother banner when it comes to endo as far as other treatment areas and support, even, yeah, obviously lifestyle and things that you can do. Um, heat, I mean, just heat. I just think of like acupuncture and moxa, um, just utilising the combination of like nutrition and uh, acupuncture together for endometriosis and women having endo sorry having endo having <laughs> acupuncture and and moxa and heat around the times of ovulation or around those kind of pain points and getting that um, blood flow going I know I know even from a Chinese perspective endometriosis is very much looked at, at, at blood stagnation which sounds you know kind of a bit sort of like um, I don't know. You know, I feel like they have their stuff figured yeah, out. Yeah, I know. I was just going to say, like, if you, it, they say blood stagnation, but then when you look at, like, right back to what we're talking about as far as that pathogenesis and what's going on with, like, those development of, like, the adhesions and that sort of heal repair and a lot of the, like, um, even that retrograde menstruation theory, like, that, I guess, because TCM is one of those things that's been around for a really long freaking time. Yeah. So if you think about it, like how, how they would have 
thought about this and I guess theorized their version of the progression of this disease as well. Like the retrograde menstruation theory kind of ties in with what you would think about in terms of blood stagnation, like that blood's not flowing optimally, it's not moving out of the body. Yeah. So that kind of makes, it makes sense in my brain. It does. And I know I was listening a while ago to, what was his name? was a, I'll find it guys and put in the show notes. It was a particular professor who had, done a lot of studies on endo um, and he was talking about he was, it was a very dry podcast he was interesting to listen to but it was <laughs> like a, you know a scientist talking sometimes can be a bit dry but he was talking about the concept of stagnation um, but referring to it in the sort of science that they're doing now and finding about that dysregulation of the inflammatory response and how heavily platelets are involved and the cascade there and like platelets for those who are just like what are platelets are like the sort of coagulating sort of sticky component in our blood and if you think of that like sticky platelets sort of stagnation of everything kind of coming together and um, adhesions like he was sort of talking about we're seeing that happening we're seeing this platelet um, activity with endometriosis in these up updated and new studies and it kind of scientifically plays back into this concept of blood stagnation so it's pretty it's pretty wild and I think it just plays back again into these therapies like acupuncture but also the use of heat and why women feel so good when they're in pain with stretching moving applying heat Um, it'd be amazing to see I don't know what's been done with studies looking at women with saunering as well Um, I know for myself even like if I'm got period pain god the thought of just hopping in a nice warm sauna is just bliss or laying in the sun and the sun on your belly (laughs) like it's just heaven yeah and also in terms of that sauna like detoxifying (laughs) and helping that estrogen move out of the body and also any toxins that you've got like the sauna is probably a good one to add to the list actually yeah yeah i didn't think about that um anything else you wanted to mention Uh, i think we kind of covered a lot yeah (laughs) like maybe maybe this is getting a bit long now maybe we should um (laughs) we can do stage call it (laughs) well what we what we'll do guys is we have mentioned a lot and i hope it's been really helpful. So we will jam up the show notes. I'll um, get Mickey to share with me a lot of the studies she's mentioned, but we'll put a lot of references in there so you can go and have a look. And if you have any questions about this specifically, you can absolutely hit us up in our DMs on our socials. When this podcast is up and in our socials, you can comment there. And yes. of course, if you want to explore this further, which we hope we've encouraged you to, you can always reach out to us at JCN because, um, yeah, it's an area that we absolutely love to treat. And we know that there's a lot of women that are suffering out there with it as a condition and they just simply don't need to be when there's so much that we can do. Literally. And I, I don't think I've had anyone that I've treated with this that haven't had at least some reduction in in symptoms and some reduction in that pain. Yeah, that's so true. And how amazing is that to say that? I could say the same thing. Like how I just think alone, like why not? Like if you know that there's such a high success rate with reduction of pain and better outcome, like why wouldn't you? It's a (laughs) no-brainer. I would much prefer not to be in pain for like, the rest of my life thanks that'd be great (laughs) exactly (laughs) if I had the option I would definitely choose pain reduction even if that meant I had to drink knack like every day (laughs) yeah exactly all right guys well thank you so much for joining us and thanks Mickey it's been awesome no problem I enjoyed myself (laughs) good I like it all right guys (laughs) thanks again and we'll chat to you next time Bye. bye